Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Adam Gopnik is the author of The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery. Adam has been writing for The New Yorker since 1986. He is a three-time winner of the National Magazine Award for Essays and for Criticism and of the George Polk Award for Magazine Reporting. In March 2013, Gopnik was awarded the Medal of Chevalier de l'Ordre des Arts et des Lettres by the French Republic. He lives in New York City with his wife and their two children. Did you like my accent? Welcome, Adam. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss the real work on the mystery of mastery. I am delighted to be here, and I am married to a mom 
who didn't have enough time to read books, but is catching up on it now and, and had a kind of typically robust pandemic program of big books. She Amazing. read through Dick and Proust and all those things. Oh, wow. I can't have them on the podcast, but you know, <laughs> we need like an offshoot of like classics, but yeah, exactly. Oh, well, next time. <laughs> Anyway, okay, so the real work. This phrase comes from magicians. Tell everyone what your book is about and why why this book and why now? Well, my favorite line in the book is was originally intended to be its opening line, which is um this is a self-help book that won't yes. help. Yeah, I love that, by the way. That was my awesome. publisher asked me I would keep it but move it to a slightly later spot so people picking it up in the bookstore wouldn't say what but it's a it's a series of personal essays, really, comic essays of the kind that I write for The New Yorker magazine most often about learning to do things in what I'll call politely <laughs> a later middle age. And specifically, it's about, as the subtitle of the book says, the mystery of mastery. How is it we get good at things? How is it that we get satisfaction when we're not particularly good at things? How do we learn to do new things in later life? How did we learn to do new things when we were younger. And if the book has a crux, and I hope as with um, with all good books, its pleasures lie in the particulars. Um, there are, I hope, some you know very funny portraits of the back and forth between me struggling to learn a new skill, like learning to drive, and the combination of patience and exasperation on the part of this wonderful gamut of teachers who I was blessed to stumble upon. Jacob Collins, a hard-nosed reactionary drawing master who taught me how to draw nude bodies. Arturo Leon, a wild Ecuadorian uh, driving instructor who taught me in my 50s how to become the noodle, how to be both relaxed and present in a car where I was terrified. Right on to Joey Contrada, my wonderful boxing instructor, who I hope I'll see again tomorrow. I'm still very much engaged with who demonstrated to me that boxing is not unleashed belligerence at all, but just the opposite. It's learning a tight balletic-like choreography of gestures that you have to internalize. So there's all these encounters with wonderful teachers, but if there's a, a kind of takeaway from it all, aside from the, the pleasures of those particulars, the takeaway is twofold, I think. One is that uh, accomplishment matters more than achievement. This is a theme that I decanted on in... Uh, the New York Times just last week. I I tried to compress uh, the book from <laughs> from fifty thousand words into one thousand. Yes, thank you for that. <laughs> and the point is that we live in a society that is absolutely driven by an idea of achievement, and it's particularly something that we install or instill. Both words operate into our children. We want them to achieve. We want them to pass. The next test, we want them to get straight A's, then we want them to get into a competitive college, on and on. And we drive them that way. And we drive ourselves in similar ways because we are those children grown up. And as a consequence, we kind of are caught up in a in a not even a rat race, kind of like more like a rat maze where you're constantly turning the next corner. We're having our kids turn the next corner. They get the next sugar shot of achievement approval, and then they go on. Against that. I posit the existence of accomplishment. And by accomplishment, I mean all of the, if you like, interdirected, self-made, self-nourishing activities that we choose. I gave the example in that piece in the Times of my learning to play guitar, teaching myself to play guitar when I was 12 years old, 
all I had. And you, if I turned the, the, the camera, you would see I still have uh, an acoustic guitar and my will and a big book of Beatles songs with big diagrams of chords. I had never touched a guitar before, but I wanted to be a Beatles. So <laughs> just do it. And I laboriously, painful, literally painfully, because stretching your fingers when you're 12 years old over a classical neck, which my son, who's a very good guitarist, told me was a stupid thing to do. I should have had a, a proper folk guitar. It's difficult, but I <clears throat> managed. Now, I have... I've played guitar professionally once on stage in the in the subsequent 50 years, but I am nobody's idea of a good guitarist. But in fact, I will tell you quickly a story that I've not told to any, uh, not mentioned anybody else, and I, I, because it, it's sort of relevant. I, the time I played, if I may drop a name, was with um, James Taylor, the great singer songwriter, wow. who is a, a friend. And James had asked me if I would come on stage on Carnegie Hall on the night when he was doing a kind of demonstration of his passion for the guitar. He was doing kind of season at Carnegie Hall. One of the nights was going to be about the guitar, and he asked me if I'd come on and sort of host it because there were lots of guitarists coming on and off stage. And I said, sure, but why don't we do this little bit that we had done once before at a New Yorker festival where he taught me to play a piece on guitar because everybody would love to take a guitar lesson with James Taylor, and I would stand in for the whole audience. So we did it. We did it on stage at Carnegie Hall. James taught me to play a uh, you can close your eyes. That beautiful lullaby, ah. which I had tried to play for years for my own children and been playing it correctly, and he taught it to me. Audience seemed to enjoy it, but I realized in as I left that I could say there are very few superlatives that we can confidently claim in life. I can say with confidence that I am the worst single musician ever to play his instrument <laughs> at Carnegie Hall. There's no question. <laughs> that is the one superlative I can absolutely claim. No worst musician has ever played an instrument on stage at Carnegie Hall. In any case, that was my one time. <laughs> Nonetheless, though that was the only time I've ever played guitar professionally or unprofessionally as it happened, everything else that I've accomplished in life, everything I've achieved in life is really built on the pedestal of that accomplishment because it was when I taught myself how to play guitar through sheer dint and perseverance that for the first time in my life, I felt confident in the pursuit of any task. Once you've done that, you believe, you recognize, or in, in as funny ways to be, your body recognizes. I don't know how else to put it. Your body learns that given a difficult task, you may not master it to the ultimate level, but that you can manage it. And we all know as parents how enlivening, how empowering, to use another old-fashioned word, that is for our kids. And it doesn't matter if they get to be the best at it, the moment when they can hit a baseball or serve a tennis ball or write a haiku, or in my own, my son's case, learn to do complicated uh, sleight of hand with a deck of cards. Those are the moments when we see them light up, when they, they seem genuinely to have been become in touch with that thing psychologists sometimes call the flow, the presence of uh, absorption, which is all that happiness is really, is absorption in a task outside ourselves. So this is a very long-winded way of saying that the book posits the difference between accomplishment and achievement and is really about the joys of accomplishment. Wow. Well, thank you for that. And long-winded is great. 
I love that. That's the whole point is to get you to talk. So there you go. <laughs> you know, it was funny because you talked about in the book about how in middle age, we are perhaps less, you had a funny line that we're less able, but more aware of our, <laughs> so tell me a little bit more about that. And is there hope for us middle-aged people? Totally. Well, you know, when we're when we're kids and adolescents, right, and we're searching for a vocation, the thing we do well in life. So we sort of sort through a bunch of things and we rule out a lot of stuff that we don't in some sense naturally do well. I tell the story in the book about when I went to learn to draw because I'd been an art critic for 40 years and did not know how to draw at all. Now, you could make a case that you don't have to know how to draw to be a good art critic in the same way you don't have to be able to hit 100 mile per hour fastball to be a good sports writer. Just the opposite most often. The greatest sports writers tended to be like my hero, A.J. Liebling, the greatest boxing writer, tended to be corpulent, stolid, immobile men who loved to observe. Though Liebling, in fact, did box as a young man. But I do think that if you have some general, tactile, corporeal sense, haptic sense, if you like, of what that task is like, you may not be able to do it better, but you have a, a much deeper understanding of what the particular challenge is that confronts the boxer or the painter or whomever it might be. Once you've studied drawing, even if you draw very badly, when you look at a Renaissance picture forever after, you're a little more immune to the temptation of seeing it as a kind of move in a game of abstract historical chess. And you're aware that what Michelangelo or Castagno or Montaigne was struggling with was, how do you describe the way the weight of a foot lands on the ground while the weight of the opposite hip is lifted above it. That's what they were struggling with, not where does this fit in the development of Western civilization. So in that sense, I think it's hugely valuable. But as a kid, I had couldn't draw it all, so I just put it aside. I said, I'm not going to dissect frogs when I'm grown up, and I'm not going to do art. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a writer. But when we come to them again later in life, we realize we don't have to be good at it to get something extremely significant from it. Something significant, both in the sense that I was just describing, that we become more attuned, sensitive, if you like, to the nature of other of the tasks um, other people take on. If you want to appreciate what a great pianist does, play piano poorly. That's the way, <laughs> that's the, the way to get it. And I, I do that. I do play piano poorly so I can... <laughs> when I hear Bill Evans or Earl Garner or someone like that, I have a sense of the power, virtuosity of what they do. But the other great advantage of it is that the internal sensation that learning a new thing supplies you is paradoxically every bit as rich for those of us who do it poorly, but attempted passionately and with perseverance, as it is for the people who are genuinely good at it. I, I tell the, the story at one point, as you know, Zibby, in the book about um, the Hummingbird and the Elephant. That could have been an alternative title for this book, mm. The Hummingbird and the Elephant, because there's the famous kind of folktale that hummingbirds and elephants have the same number of heartbeats in a lifetime, uh, a billion heartbeats. And you'd be sure that that was just a folktale, but it's true. <laughs> it turns out to be true. There's a whole heartbeat project at North Carolina State University where they study heartbeats and grosso modo, with you know obvious exceptions, Every mammal and bird basically gets a billion heartbeats in a lifetime. The hummingbird gets hers in 100 days and the elephant gets his in 100 years, but they have the same number of heartbeats. And the, the poetic reflection one inevitably makes about that is that their experience of existence is identical, right? The hummingbird in 100 days mates 
uh, eats, feeds, uh, exists, flies, uh, just as intently as the elephant does over its over its hundred years. And the next poetic extrapolation that comes immediately to mind is is that we are all we all have the interiors of hummingbirds. Our hummingbird heartbeats rest in our own our own interiors. And when we take on a new task, we get the flutter, the thrill, the excitement of having gotten a bit better at it. You know, there's every single task that I undertook in the course of doing this book, and they and they wasn't planned in advance. It was one thing after another happened. Every single thing I did had exactly the same structure. And that is you were introduced to these very counterintuitive, stubborn, halting steps. Dancing. Dancing is the model for everything else. I've learned to foxtrot with my wonderful daughter, Olivia, and you trip over your feet trying to follow the steps that your formal dance teacher is insisting on, and you look like a fool, (laughs) and she struggles to follow your lead, and so on. And then over time, through sheer passionate perseverance and repetition, those stumbling steps become a dance. And you hold your daughter in your arms and you realize, oh, darling, we're dancing together. That's the model of how all of those things happen. And you don't have to be dancing at the level of Sid Charisse and Fred Astaire to have that enormous sense of bliss, of of, uh, release, of the flow being a tangible thing between the two of you simply by by having done it. And so the glorious thing is, as we get older, that um, feeling, which is in some ways rarer in our mature lives than it was when we were younger. When we were younger, we were getting that, that hit, that high all the time. But it's still available to us if we undertake the new thing. And so, you know, we tend to condescend to older people who are learning watercolors or doing batik or playing chess. And we're, we have a horribly ageist culture, as I'm sure you agree, and we we patronize those people. But those are the people who have rocket fuel in their veins. Those are the people who are getting high on the most powerful cognitive opiate that there's ever been, and that is human entry into the, the power of absorption, uh, into the flow, into the bliss of accomplishment. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wish my grandmother were alive to hear you describe her late stage painting career, not career, you know, enjoyment. Right. That eloquently, she would have loved it. <laughs> but it's true. I'm wondering, what do you think? Because I feel like some of the things I accomplish or I have to master are on the computer. They're not like learning to, you know, back dive anymore, right? Or all those things I used to do, but it's, I can't upload this ad and I can't, I have to troubleshoot it. And I, okay, I finally figured it out. And now I took the ad and I press submit. Phew. Like, does that count? That's why God invented teenagers. tasks <laughs> <laughs> for us. You know, I'm, everybody comes up, there's a, there's a line, I don't know what it is. It's like anything you didn't master technologically before you were 40 is going to be totally opaque to you. And <laughs> I am as much as anyone around, you know, when I, I can't turn the television on without calling my son in Texas and saying, Luke, could you have a moment here? We're trying to get onto the Disney app, yeah. but I can't, I can't do it. What do I have to tell me? Walk me through it again. Patiently, he walks me through this very simple sequence that I forgot. One of the things I think is true, and I had not, I, I know it sounds implausible, but authors learn about their own books very often by having conversations like this one, or in my case, I've just come back from a book tour. I've been in 20 cities and my gosh. I'm, I am the Willie Loman of American <laughs> literature, town, hoping to be well-liked. Like, But you learn about your own book when you're out on the road. And one of the things that many readers pointed out to me, which should have been self-evident, but wasn't, is that this is a book very much about someone who has spent a large part of his life living in his head, which writers naturally have to do, communicating with symbols, little black and white marks on a screen as now or on a page, who then picks up, takes up physical activities, dancing and boxing, drawing, even driving. Now, one of the truths of all those physical activities is that they're not physical. They are profoundly psychological. We cannot, anything we do becomes everything we are. You cannot learn to drive a car in isolation from your memories of your father driving, from expectations of your son learning to drive. We are meaning machines. Human beings are meaning machines. And anything we attempt, we can't do mechanically. We do it through the accession of meaning in our, in our heads and hearts and lives. So they're not physical in that narrow sense. They're richly psychological. But they do involve mastering mastering physical actions like boxing or or dancing. And so in that sense, I suppose there's a sort of built-in predilection in this book that we all do well by picking out a physical uh, a physical pleasure to to pursue as we as we get older. It's good for your body, it's good for your synapses, and it's good for your soul to perpetually pursue that, you know, and I think that that in itself is good pursuing the physical, even if we understand that there is no such thing as the purely physical in life. Even the most purely physical things we do, like lovemaking, are the most complexly psychological things that we can we can take part in. Interesting. I love it. Do you think you can ever really master writing? Well, you know, so here's the truth, I think, is that, you know, writing has been my passion since I could read. I never ever wanted to be anything else except a writer. I'm very uh, monomaniacal in my pursuit of it. And I think it is the one thing that I that I do do well. And I, you know, I'm I'm too old to pretend otherwise now and to uh, <laughs> have published too many words. 
but the paradox of that, of course, is that the thing the thing we really do well is inevitably the thing that gives us, in a certain sense, the least flow, the least bliss. Because with everything else we do, simply by watching all the stumbling steps begin to form themselves into an internalized sequence, we get high. But when you do one thing well, inevitably, you can only experience the space between your ambitions and your accomplishments. So when I sit down to write a sentence, and I I am rare, if not unique, among writers, because I love to write flip open my laptop at nine o'clock with my with my coffee, and I'm a happy man. I, I love the act, the physical act of writing. But inevitably, when I read it through again, I want every sentence to be as psychologically intricate as Proust, as centrally rhapsodic as John Updike, and as cuttingly sardonic as S.J. Perlman. And I, I don't get that. I don't produce that. I, I like what I produce, but I don't produce that. So the space between my ambitions and my accomplishments, as with everyone. I, I have a dear friend who's a winemaker named Randall Graham. I wrote a profile of once, a wonderful winemaker in California. But when Randall goes to sniff and to taste his own wine, a look of un, immeasurably painful disappointment crosses his face. The wine is good, but he has in mind a 1945 Cheval Blanc, you know, the greatest wines ever made. That's what he's trying to make and making a terrific wine is just an internal source of disappointment to him. I wonder if there's a way to get to a place where we're all just happy with the best that we're doing. Possible? Not possible? Well, I think in, in all seriousness, Sibby, I think what you can get to, and that's what I was trying to describe, is a place where you love doing it. That that you can yes. get to, right? Where you'll never be feel that it's good enough, but where you actually actively love the act of doing it. And, you know, dying new, as we say yes. at, <laughs> at Seder. Dying new, that, that, would, that is enough. I, I actually have a novel coming out in March and the main character, one of the characters has a dog and I named the dog Diana. <laughs> Good. It's a great, you know, it's very Jewish, but it, it, I always think it's one of the w- greatest words, yes. phrases of wisdom that there is. That would be enough, right? Yes, it would be enough. Just did that much for us, that would be enough. Yes. And it's, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful thought. I agree. What is something you would like to master next? Is there anything on your wish list? Yeah, absolutely. Two things, particularly, both of them I'm pursuing, but didn't have, you know, was just kind of nosing around when I was working on this book. One is singing. I write mm-hmm. songs, I write musical theater. And though I'm a lyricist, not a not a composer, or I occasionally I'll I'll paint a tiny <laughs> tune and the composer will will take it and move it to another dimension. I would love to be able to sing my own work because it's very hard to demonstrate a song to a, a singer or an actor or an actress without singing it. I have a good, good friend, uh, Richard Maltby, wonderful lyricist, who can really land a, a song. The composer, Andrew Lippa, who I'm writing a show with right now, is a fantastic singer, professional quality singer. So I'd like to be able to sing well enough just to learn it. And the best singers I know all tell me it's not that hard. Singing is just speaking in pitch. So I'm struggling with that. The other thing <laughs> is to learn Italian. The other thing is to learn Italian. I love oh, Italy. I thought you said accounting, and I was like, what? No, Why? no, no, no. <laughs> accounting, accounting is totally off the mark here. I, that, that, I, I learned to draw, and that was difficult. I was I'm never going to learn accounting. But Italian, I love Italy, is who does not, yeah. and I love going to Italy. I speak decent French, having grown up in Montreal and having lived in France for many years, but I don't speak Italian, and I feel that terrible sense of frustration 
and inadequacy. And the worst thing I ever do in life is to pretend to speak Italian. When we're in Italy, I once in a restaurant in Venice, I ordered very confidently wild strawberries for dessert and got a plate of green beans. <laughs> Instead, because there's a, a single R, fragolini and fagiolini that divides them. The kids thought it was the single funniest thing that had ever happened in the world. Oh and they, they, do not, they do not pause in compassion to repeat the story to their friends. So I would like to be able to speak with enough authority to distinguish between wild strawberries and green beans. I tried I tried to take Italian when I was in my 20s and I took it for, I don't know, a year. Now, of course, I remember nothing, but it's such a beautiful language. It's fun even when you fail. Yes, I, I would. So I would like to have enough to be able to to order, uh, yeah. order, order dinner. And of course, the waiter like served you the green beans. What a move, yeah. right? Yes. <laughs> Of course, he wasn't going to give, he wasn't going to cut me a break. I will say that of all the things I'm proud of, I have a wonderful Italian publisher who publishes all of my books in Italian, beautifully designed. So far as I can tell, they've never sold a single copy of (laughs) it, but they all exist in Italian and nothing makes me prouder than looking over at my shelf and seeing my books in Italian. What advice do you have for aspiring authors? Two things in all seriousness. First is that the big task in writing is to turn the mental task of writing into a physical task of having written. It sounds counterintuitive, I know, but you don't really write with your head, though you live in your head to some degree. You write with your stomach. That is, you just have to treat it as a challenge, like uh, riding a stationary bike or being on a, a treadmill, a treadmill, right? Where you just commit to doing it physically day after day after day because your brain is smarter than your mind. The best sentences, the most interesting ideas you ever have will come from your brain into your fingers without the intercession of your conscious mind very often. And if you'd make that commitment just to work four hours a day the way you would go to the gym, you will astonish yourself by how much you produce. And then something that exists can always be made better something that doesn't exist can't be made to exist. So that's the fundamental challenge in writing is 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 releasing yourself just to produce and trusting that the process will eventually produce something good. That's one part of it. And the other thing is the same as with everything else is to make an absolute commitment to perseverance. Anthony Trollope, my favorite novelist in English, had a full-time job at the post office and he got woke himself up at 6 a.m. to write for three hours before he had to go to the post office at nine. And he wrote I think not only among the greatest series of English novels, but the most voluminous series of English novels. So make that commitment, make the commitment to the time and then make the commitment to the physicality of it. And you will astonish yourself by what you're able to accomplish. I'd much rather commit to the writing than the gym. (laughs) If we have to choose. (laughs) Then, Then do that. But I'm sure you've had the same experience too. And there's almost, you know, I talked about that moment of inner bliss of the flow when the the those stumbling steps become a sequence. That's true in writing too. I know that there's there are mental aerobics, just like physical aerobics. And about forty five minutes into my own stumbling steps on the keyboard, even after all these years, the aerobics kick in and the sentences begin to spin themselves out, and and all the little jokes, puns, alliterations begin to unspool without your being fully in control of it. Well, I'm going to disagree with the self-help that doesn't help because I do think it helps. I think it is actually an ode to the growth mindset, which every parent is trying to teach their kids every day. And it's been packaged and repackaged in so many articles and ways. And this book is like 
people learn through hearing stories of people trying things. So this is actually quite helpful. And I think it's important for all of us grownups not to lose that joy of learning and mastery, even if it is just uploading a file or writing a page or whatever it is. You're you're kind to say so. And yes, of course, I think the book helps. It helps us become (laughs) aware of how we became selves in the first place and how we can continue to expand ourselves as as life goes on. So yes, I think it helps. <laughs> Even if it doesn't give you shortcuts and recipes, it gives you long cuts, long so cuts. to speak. And it does certainly give you stories. Yes. Well, thank you, Adam. This was so much fun. I really love talking to you. I've been a fan for so long. So thank you very, very much for coming on. It was truly my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. You too now. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.